Hey everybody, Eric Wright here, the host of the Disco Posse podcast. You're going to really enjoy this show, and this is a real legitimate set of incredible lessons from Michelle Seiler Tucker. Uh, Michelle's a multi-time author and also buyer and seller of businesses. We're going to talk about her book, Exit Rich, uh, and just the philosophies behind how to be a successful business builder for sale, even if it's something you wouldn't plan for from the start, but how do you make sure that you prepare yourself in order to sell your business? Really, really cool. And just a lot of amazing business fundamentals. And this is the stuff that you're not going to learn when you take an MBA. All right. But before we get started, let's jump in and make sure we give a big thanks and a shout out to the folks that make this happen. And that would be our friends and supporters over at Veeam Software. Because remember, everything you need for your data protection needs comes out of the Veeam camp. That's right. It's very easy. Uh, in fact, if you want to check it out, uh, you can head over to Veeam. Go to vee.am forward slash disco posse and you can see everything they got. And that's going to be stuff to protect your virtualization platforms, your bare metal, your on-premises world completely covered. And then, of course, you head on up to the cloud. Let's back that cloud thing up. Not just the cloud IaaS, but we're talking SaaS. We're talking about Microsoft Teams. We're talking about Office 365. Oh, yeah. you got to back that up, too. Just because it's in the cloud doesn't mean it's protected. And in fact, don't just protect it. Make sure you can recover it anywhere, anytime in a fully automated way. That's why you go to our friend over at Veeam Availability and Disaster Recovery Orchestrator. That's right, it's actually called VDRO, Veeam Disaster Recovery Orchestrator. I'm a longtime fan of the world of disaster recovery and business continuity, so check it out. Go to vee.am forward slash disco posse. And hey, while you're at it, make sure you enjoy a nice devilishly good brew of some of the best coffee you can find around. And of course, get some really wicked cool swag while you're at it. If you head on over to diabolicalcoffee.com, you can get yourself a nice pound or 10 or 20, whatever you want, of beautifully, devilishly good beans. And on top of that, you're supporting good stuff because we actually donate a lot of stuff that goes from profits to charity. So check it out. Go to diabolicalcoffee.com. Uh, all right, let's jump in. This is Michelle Siler Tucker. Hi, I'm Michelle Siler Tucker, and you're listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. Michelle, thank you very much. I've uh, I was very happy to see you show up as a potential guest here because you are doing work that I think is going to have a pretty profound effect on a lot of folks that are listening to the show. Because we've got a lot of folks who are founders, a lot of people that are you know at different phases of of building businesses. And you've done something that you're in the business of things that can help those folks. And even better, you've brought a lot of great information to the market. You've got a recent book called Exit Rich. We've got a lot of stuff we'll talk about. Uh, so with that, uh, Michelle, do you want to give yourself a quick, a quick bio to folks that are brand new to you? And then we'll talk about the book and, and your background and what brought you to write it. Sure. All right, so I'm not sure what you want me to say. But <laughs> I'm an M&A, Mergers and Acquisitions Master Intermediary. Been in business for, been selling companies a little over 20 years. I personally sold 500 businesses. My team has sold, my, myself and my team have sold over 1,000 companies. And uh, we've done thousands upon thousands of valuations. 
I also specialize in buying, selling, fixing, growing companies. So I'll buy businesses, flip them. I partner with business owners, investing my time, energy, effort, and capital and resources to put business owners <clears throat> on a build to sell program. And what, like I said, what we really specialize in doing is fixing businesses because eight out of 10 businesses will not sell according to Steve Forbes. And so we fix businesses, we grow them, we put them on the build to sell model and we merge businesses and sell businesses. So that's what we do at any given time on five to 10 businesses that I'm actually building to sell. Now that uh, obviously has come from, you've effectively built a strong system around what it is you need to do to be successful in this. Uh, I'm curious, Michelle, what was the the background that brought you to to taking this on as a, as a task in, in your first time? Sure. I, and I forgot to mention, I'm an author of three books. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Not just one book. Of course, Exit Rich the Most is one we'll talk about, but we'll talk about the others as well. You've got, you're, you're very prolific. What brought you into being in, in the business of buying business and, and mergers and acquisitions, Michelle? So I've always been an entrepreneur. I've owned many different companies, um, even from a very young age. And um, I did go into franchise sales, franchise development, and franchise consulting, and sold hundreds and hundreds of franchises. But I kept having lots of buyers ask me for existing businesses. And I didn't have any existing businesses because I was selling new franchises. And I was actually a partner in some different franchisors, an equity partner. Then I decided, you know, there's so many buyers out here for good existing businesses versus new startup franchises that I should start my mergers and acquisitions firm. And that's really how I got started. Now, the you talked about being an early entrepreneur. Uh, what actually gave you the the entrepreneurial bug? Was it, because I'm imagining you probably, that's something we, we develop, uh, but we learn about often quite early in our lives. Yeah, I don't say there's anything that gave me. I didn't really grow up in a family of entrepreneurs. Uh, my dad had a couple of businesses. He wasn't really, I wouldn't say he was very successful, but he had a few businesses. Other than that, I didn't really grow up with entrepreneurs. I just knew from early on that I didn't like to be told what to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to do my own thing. <laughs> March to the beat of my own drum. And I just knew, always knew I wanted to be my own boss. Nice. Yeah. So I've, I've, my favorite thing is founders often describe themselves as unemployable just because it's like they, they know what they want to achieve and, and they certainly are, they can't take direction in order to get to it. So, yeah, I mean, we still got to be employed by our clients, right? Our clients employ us. Ah, and if we don't point. listen to our clients and don't, don't follow our clients' instructions, sometimes we can become unemployed very easily. So rather you want to be employed or be told what to do, even if you own your own boss, you still are answering to somebody. Now, when you were working through in in the franchise area, you know, mm -hmm. which is developed on a the idea of using a systematic approach, when did when did you sort of see that as an opportunity to go outside and bring that systematic approach then to, as you said, like existing businesses and uh, I'm curious that that first one or the first few that you you decided to take on. Um, what I'm sorry, what systematic approach are you referring to? 
or just like when do you when did you see how you could take the practices that you had learned from working in the the franchise and then bring mm -hmm. this that sort of those methodologies to an existing business? Yeah, so it's 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 extremely different. Um, and and if you're not familiar with it, or most people aren't, it's very different. I mean, becoming a partner with a new franchisor, a franchisor. And doing franchise sales, franchise development, and franchise consulting is extremely different than selling existing businesses and fixing and growing and building to sell existing businesses. There's really very little similarity. Um, the only similarity is maybe in the existing franchisor, because existing franchisor really has to operate on what I call the six P's, the ST six P's that we talk about in my book, Exit Rich. If they don't build a, a, a solid foundation, a solid infrastructure on the six Ps, they're not going to, they're not going to be sustainable. They're not going to be able to scale. They're not going to be able to stay in business for very long. So there's some similarities there as far as the main franchise corporation. Um, as far as selling new franchisees, new franchises is completely different than selling existing businesses. There's really zero similarities because for a new franchise, for a new franchise, you know, we're looking for the franchisee, we're qualifying the franchisee on the financial capacity and on skill sets. And you do that with existing businesses. You qualify buyers on their financial capacity and their skill sets. Um, but with a new franchise, we're also really strongly looking at demographics and where we should place this new franchisee, you know, where they, what strip mall, what location we should put them in, you know, and then we're helping them hire their people and we're hiring and we're helping them really base their business and, and start their business on what I call the ST six P's with an existing business. They already have the location. They already have the people in place, right? They already have, and are operating on many of the six P's, maybe not all, but but some of them. So there is some similarities, like I said, in the franchisor type of it. But as far as selling new franchises compared to existing businesses, it's completely different. When you saw the you know, the opportunity to affect somebody's growth and and you know help, as you said, like to build towards sale, you mm -hmm. know what what was what's exciting to you about seeing that you know obviously there's a there's both a business and a people impact i i've mm -hmm. I'd, I'd love to hear you know what what drew you to be able to bring people through that journey to prepare them for sale you mean for an existing or for a new yeah for an existing what prepared me i think it's only many different companies and many different verticals <laughs> yeah. sitting behind a desk knowing what works what doesn't you know, really figuring out, doesn't matter what industry you're in, the six P's or the six P's and they, they, you know, it's a foundation that you really need in every vertical regardless. And, um, I, I think that's kind of what prepared me just seeing what works, what doesn't work. And, you know, most business owners, a lot of business owners are not sellable. Like I said before, 80% of businesses don't sell. And the reasons for those are all similar. <laughs> business owners really make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And so that's, you know, spending 20, 20 plus years in the trenches of selling franchises and then selling businesses. I think all of that is what prepared me not to mention my own companies that I've, that I've operated. And, and that's the, 
the interesting thing, as you said, a lot of it's repeatable things that you see. And but for those business builders and owners, I, I think the tough part is they're so they're they're very sort of myopic in their view. They can't see outside of their own set of uh, of run in the organization. It's probably and this is why they need you know you to come in and say, look, I've I'm I'm looking in at what you're doing and I've seen this play out. And it's not going to play out well, right? What's the what's the reception when you begin to consult through that process and have to kind of show people the warts of the challenges that they're facing? So, you know, some are open to change and some are not. You know, I always say you can only grow the business as much as you can grow the owner. I don't know if you've ever watched the show on Marcus Lemonis, um, The Profits on CNBC. But, you know, he gives them clear instructions of what yeah. to do and what to change. And they all push back. I don't think anybody just takes it and does it. <laughs> Nobody really follows his lead and his instructions, even though he's really clearly the expert. And same thing with me. I'm clearly the expert at what I do. You know, so, yeah, we, we get a lot of pushback because, again, they're entrepreneurs. They don't want to be told what to do. <laughs> 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 they don't want to answer to anybody. And... um you know, like I say, and it's tough because you're right. I mean, they don't see things when you're in your fog, it's foggy. And you really need an outsider's perspective, you know, to, to help really read the, the warning signs and keep you out of the danger zone. Um, but business owners have to be willing to listen. They have to be willing to, um, you know, get advice from experts, somebody who's been on their road before. And they have to be willing to, to change and make change. And some are, some aren't, you know, I've, I've, I've sat in meetings and told business owners, don't tell your employees that you're selling your business. And the next thing they do is turn around and tell all their employees. Oh, and then no. they wonder why 50% of the workforce quits, you know? <laughs> so it's just, um, it's, 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 it's business owners want to do things their own way. So it's really our job to, to try to, get the business owners to understand that this is for your own good. This is for your protection. This is to help protect your company and help maximize your value. And that's what we do. You know, we, we don't go in and force things. We do it from a educational perspective versus just trying to slam something down their throat. And I, luckily, you've got the believability because you've got proof in in execution right and i think mm -hmm. that will hopefully that that helps those those founders to at least trust but like you said there's a there's the psychology of the founder they're 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 pretty sure they've got the right idea and the market just isn't ready versus yeah. maybe you need to meet in the middle with the market <laughs> right all right i mean put yourself in their shoes you know if you're running your business and you're doing the day-to-day -day and you're doing all this stuff and somebody comes in and tells you you're doing everything wrong <laughs> the first thing you're going to do is push back that's right so you don't want to go in there pushing because then you're going to automatically get pushback so you want to really go in there and and look at all the things that they're doing right and highlight all the things that they're doing right and then come in and bring in the areas of opportunity to where they can really affect change and growth. When you raised it earlier already, you talked about like we have to listen to our clients and ultimately mm -hmm. our customers, right? And it's that is something that quite often 
it's I'll say it's a dichotomy of the founder that they have to be very like they have to be aiming towards a vision that's strong, you know, a, a mission that's that's big quite often. And it's a weird thing of like they have to listen to the market, but they also have to create a market sometimes. So when when you're working with founders, like how do you kind of merge the reality of the market that they're facing and yet help them to make maintain their original vision uh, is and or is it possible i'm just curious in in how that's played out in some of the examples you've gone through how do i help i'm trying to understand your question yeah so like when cuz like a founder's vision is often built on like we are preparing the world for what it doesn't know it needs like they mm -hmm. kind of like they, steve jobs did when he came back to apple Right. Uh, but it's a tough thing when you have to, they have to survive in order to execute that vision. And how do you bring the reality of market economics and survival to still staying on the path to executing those big visions? Well, <laughs> you know, I, I tell you, I, I don't know how much research you've done on the business landscape in the United States. And I think, you know, I'm going to take a few minutes to educate, but yeah. when I wrote my very first book, Sell Your Business for More Than It's Worth in 2013 and did the research, back then, 95% of all startups from one to five years would go out of business, right? Right. So when I wrote Exit Rich in 2019, 2020, before the pandemic occurred and did the exact same research, I learned that the business landscape has actually flip-flopped. It's only 30% now of startups that will go out of business. Those one to five years are not at great risk anymore. Only 30%, which is good news to startup nation. However, out of 27.6 million companies, those businesses have been in business 10 years or longer, 70, 70% will go out of business. It used to be if you're in business five, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, you're in business for the long haul. Not anymore. The longer you're in business, the more you're at risk of going out of business. Now you've heard about the big public companies, Toys R Us, been in business 75 years, goes out of business. Steinmark, been in business forever, goes out of business. Pier One, Montgomery Wars is in trouble. JC Penney's is in trouble. Jamboree goes out of business. Godava Chocolate closes down 1,500 locations. GNC closes down 900 locations. You know, Blockbuster went out of business because they saw Netflix. They saw the writing on the wall. They had an opportunity to buy Netflix and they did nothing, nothing at all, and ended up going out of business. That's the big public companies. What you're not hearing about, all, because the media doesn't talk about it, are all the private companies on every street corner in every town and every state across our great nation. These business owners are, are going out of business. They're exiting poor, not exiting rich, like my book says. They're selling for pennies on a the dollar. They're closing their business. And many of them are filing bankruptcy. And they're losing not just their business assets, but their personal assets too, because most business owners pierce that corporate veil. So why is that? Why is that? Well, I'll tell you why that is. The number one reason why the business landscape has changed and flip-flopped before the pandemic it's because business owners stopped doing one thing. They stopped doing a lot of things, but the biggest thing is lack of aim. Aim is always innovate and market. Always innovate and market. And many of these business owners get stuck 
and their ideas of the way they started their business and they want to do things the way they've always done them. You're either growing or dying. There is no in-between. Growing or dying. Blockbuster did nothing different. Toys R Us did nothing different in 75 years. So business owners have to continue to innovate. If you don't innovate, you will die. If you don't innovate in market, you will die. So to answer your question, <laughs> I educate business owners on, okay, this is how you started your business. This is the basis, you know, of your innovation, but you haven't done anything new in 20 years. And here's the bottom line. Consumers don't purchase products and services the way they used to. Whoever makes it easiest for the consumer to do business with you is a company that's going to win. Amazon is winning because Amazon, Amazon doesn't really innovate. Think about it. What does Amazon do? They make it so easy for the consumer to purchase products. You can practically buy anything, including a horse, <laughs> and have it delivered to your house in two days. So not only do you have to innovate, but you have to go back to the consumer and ask the consumer, what do you need? What do you want? How can I make it easier for you to do business with our company? Business owners stop innovating, they stop marketing, and most importantly, they stop asking the customer, the client, the consumer, what do you need? What do you want? Or be preemptive and figure out what they want and what they need like Steve Jobs did. Here's the other thing. If you've been in business 20, 30, 40 years, your customers are probably aging out. <laughs> right. So you've done nothing new and nothing innovative in which to keep those consumers doing business with you. But more importantly than that, going after the other generations, Generation X, millennials, right? Yeah. Now, this is interesting. And, and like the statistics you talked about, like there's a def, there's a total inversion. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, people are still hung on the metrics they remember. They know the stats of, yeah, 95% plus of startups will fail. We still quote those numbers. So it's- But it's wrong. <laughs> right. This is- <laughs> This is the horrifying thing about, you know, in the same way people always say you never get fired for buying IBM. I know 11 people that have been fired for buying IBM. It's <laughs> in the end, we, we take this kind of like witty sort of stat that we can have and it, it outlives its reality. So mm -hmm. what, what's missing, Michelle? Like, cause you're, you're in front of this stuff all the time. Like how is the, how is the market and well, definitely the media, you know, not grabbing onto this story and, and talking about it because it's a huge opportunity for folks to well, get started. And, and that's what's so shocking to me too. I've had this conversation with my publicist. Why isn't the media talking about this stuff? <laughs> and he's like, because it's not big news. Toys R Us is big news. Kmart goes out of business, big news. Godiva closing down 1,500 locations, big news. But the private company that has one location has been in business for 20 years. Who cares? Media doesn't care. It's not big news for them. And so nobody's really talking about this stuff. That's why I wrote Exit Rich. That's why I wanted to start the conversation. That's why I wanted to really, you know, help as many people as I can. You know, I've been on over 200 podcasts in the last, I don't know, month or two so that I can get the message out there that so many businesses are failing 
And these are the reasons they're failing. I mean, small business is the backbone of our economy. There's 30.2 million businesses in the United States employing over half the U.S. workforce. If we lose small business in the United States, we lose jobs. You lose jobs, you lose spending power. You lose spending power, more businesses shut down. It's a domino effect, and you lose even more jobs. So if we don't get behind small business, help small business owners, help entrepreneurs, you know, stay successful, build a sustainable business that's scalable, that is sellable one day, you're going to have more and more and more bankruptcies. I mean, there were more bankruptcies in 2019, even before the pandemic, than in any other year. Well, and that's that's always the the interesting thing. And of course, through the course of the pandemic, the world has been shaken up, and it and it's hard for us to measure, you know, when the effects will be felt. But this is, and again, the interesting thing that you brought up, right? Like the bankruptcies had ridden uh, had risen to incredible levels pre-pandemic so this was already in play and people don't see that they just look and they'll say oh well of course the bankruptcy went up we've been in a global pandemic like no no this was the the writing was already on the wall yeah all these statistics i'm quoting to you is way before pandemic it's even yeah. more gloom and doom now but i mean you do have more and more businesses that have started up in 2020 than any year before. And some of these startups are, are really doing well. Um, and like I said, startups are only have a 30% risk of going out of business now. The big difference between startups now and startups before the pandemic are a lot of these entrepreneurs are solving problems. They're not, they're not just opening up another coffee shop on a block when you already got six coffee shops yeah. <laughs> or another ice cream store ice cream store on a street when you already got, you know, 10 other ice cream stores. They're actually solving problems. They're doing online, you know, open up e-commerce businesses, manufacturing online businesses. You know, they're really solving problems. And that's what entrepreneurship is all about. It's not just about opening another ice cream store and cannibalizing the marketplace. It's about going out and figuring out what the problem is and then coming up with a solution. That's what entrepreneurialism is all about. And if you look at today, you know, the, the, the the needs to build a startup and sort of the mm -hmm. the capital impact of so different than than they were when like a 10 year old business even especially 20 year old business right to to build a company today is you know an online process and you know it's you know how exciting is it to like what we've got ahead of us right now Michelle like you can just you can come up with an idea you can build a business and you can be online before the day is done. Yeah, it's so exciting because, you know, when I started, gosh, when did the online bubble start? What year was that? <laughs> yeah, well, the first one, right? The 2001.com Yeah, 2001, was, yeah. yeah. Nowadays, it's so much easier to start a business. I was talking to a gentleman in Australia yesterday. I was actually on his podcast, and he's like, oh, it's so easy to start a business. I think he's got like 100 online businesses, and it really costs you nothing, and you don't necessarily have to have employees or assets or inventory. I mean, you can pretty much start an online business without investing too much yeah. and be really successful. Now, turning around and trying to sell that online business might be another thing if you don't have the solid infrastructure and you don't have you know, the business built on what I call the six Ps, then you might not be able to maximize value. But anybody really, these not anybody, let me not say anybody, <laughs> any, you know, somebody who has that entrepreneurial spirit Really, it's much easier now to start a business than it's ever been before. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, the bottom line is look around us, figure there's opportunity everywhere. 
you know, but unfortunately there's also people walking around like zombies <laughs> that they're not really, you know, conscious and they're not really looking at things and, and, and thinking about things about what can I do? How can I solve this problem? And some of the best entrepreneurs in the world are the ones who solve the biggest problems. And entrepreneurship breeds entrepreneurship, right? Like, you know, I, I own, I have a coffee shop store, right? Like an online coffee company that I built on Shopify. So because, oh, do the you? yeah, cause so, cause the people who built Shopify solved a problem that needed to be solved. And as a result, it allows me to solve a problem that needs to be solved. Right. And, and like I, somebody wrote a tweet the other day and it was, it's, it was unfortunate the way that the response to it, they said like, look, you can start a business today for under $500. Like that's an, it's a wondrous time to be able to do this. And a lot of people like re replied back in a, with a really negative sort of sense of like, this is not true. You know, I'm like, and i I didn't even want to get into the conversation. I'm like, no, I legitimately started a business for $70 and it has immediately become profitable. So it's, and it, it is totally possible to do this stuff, which is why, like I said, mm -hmm. I'm excited. But I'm curious on your thought, Michelle, where do we need to bring this? Like, is this something that we're missing in education? Like in like getting people to recognize that this is a new way of building society and, and like opportunity. Yeah. I, I want to address that two, two ways. Um, I've had many of these online companies come to me. One was a coffee company and not yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. not, for sale yet. not for sale yet. <laughs> but, but the problem is with some of these online, a lot of these online businesses is they don't have any infrastructure. They don't have any people, you know, and, and if you go through my six piece, which I think we should, that's in my book and yeah, really absolutely. educate your listeners, you know, the number one P is people. And this, this coffee company had no people. They had subcontractors and they didn't want to let their subcontractors, independent contractors, I'm sorry, independent contractors go along with the business because they want to keep those independent contractors for their next online business. Ah, okay. So that's a problem. When you're building a business, any business, whether it's online, you know, SaaS business, brick and mortar, you got to have an infrastructure. If you don't build it with an infrastructure, number one, how sustainable are you really going to be? And can you scale? And more importantly, can you sell and maximize value? Yes, maybe you can sell to somebody else who wants an online business and they're going to work that business as their job, but you're never really going to be able to maximize value because you don't have people. You don't really have the infrastructure of what a business really operates upon. And so you're really never going to maximize value. So all businesses, <laughs> SaaS, online, brick and mortar, all businesses need to really follow the 6P infrastructure that I talk about in my book, Exit Rich. The, the, to answer your question is, where do we educate these people? I think it starts in school. You know, it needs to start in school. Um, I'm educating my daughter, you know, that you want to make money. You don't just go work for money. Let's get creative. Let's get entrepreneurial, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, what can you do? Well, you got all these toys <laughs> sitting in the attic. Why don't we box up those toys and sell them? Yeah. We can sell them or, you know, we can donate them. But anyway, you, we really got to get our kids thinking about entrepreneurship early on. And I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but, um, you know, they're, they're, I'm actually interviewing Dr. Nito Cobain 
um, later today. And he is president of Lazy Boy, I think Panera Bread Company, and about a bunch of other companies. And he's also president of High Point University. And Dr. Nato Cabane has probably got one of the only schools that I feel really teaches entrepreneurship, has business, has classes where they teach you how to go out there and start a business, buy a business, you know, what business ownership, what business entrepreneurship is all about, how to go out there and solve problems. And I think it just starts, you know, as our kids are little to start teaching them, kind of like a rich dad, poor dad, you know, by Robert Kiyosaki, yeah. you know, just really teaching um, our kids to think differently. It's all about really thinking differently. Well, and even the, the the opportunity today, like you talked about before, like this is this is an incredible world that we can do things in a different way. Even if we look at some of those sort of the, the, the even rich dad, poor dad, as an example, effectively needs a new addition because the world has adjusted, right? There's other folks that are like we call it the new rich, right? Is yeah, you know, it's we it's didn't a very have Bitcoin. There wasn't no Bitcoin back then. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Michelle Fordow was read. And you know, I'm so fortunate to have Sharon Lecter, who co-authored Rich Jeff Fordow with Robert Kiyosaki as my co-author for my book, Exit Rich. Because Sharon Lecter is a New York Times bestselling author five times from Rich Jeff Fordow, plus a CPA, financial literacy expert, and the advisor to many different presidents. And she teaches financial literacy as well. But yeah, they, they need another version because... There's, there was no online back then. Yeah, you know, there was no Bitcoin back then. There, there were, there were not a lot of things. It's so much easier now, I believe, to become an entrepreneur than ever before. And even if we look at, you know, like great books like Built to Last, which were mm -hmm. used as effectively like a tome of describing the potential for for taking on a a, a blue ocean strategy in an opportunity. Well, if you look at every, almost every one of those stories effectively turned over and they've actually shed that portion of the business in order to survive. So right. that built to last wasn't built to last because the world adjusted. <laughs> no, no offense to, of course, Jim Collins and like the folks that, that did it. It was a, at a point in time, if you take the context, it was right. But we right. have to adjust context to availability of the world today, right? Right. So. Let's. You talked about the 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 P's, right? So having six P method, people is number one. If you don't mind, Michelle, let's kind of brush through what the what the six P method yeah, is. Yeah, and let's spend a little bit of time on on people because yeah. this is where a lot of e-commerce businesses, online companies are getting it wrong. You know, and you you gotta you don't look. You don't build a business. You build people, and people build a business, right? If you want a business that's going to be sustainable, scalable, and one day sellable, you do have to have the people in your organization. And a lot of online businesses have um, independent contractors, but they love their independent contractors, so they want to keep them and take yeah. them to the next new, you know, um, build business that they're building. So you really have to have that people component. You know, I always say. The entrepreneurs, and that's one reason, you know, that that coffee shop, they wanted a lot of money and the coffee business, not coffee shop, coffee business. Yeah. They wanted a lot of money for it, but they had no solid infrastructure and they had only been in business for a few years. So there really wasn't 
much history there. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. We're talking about how an exit rich is all about then it's a, a, a sustainable business. It's scalable. So people is huge. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs, they want to do everything themselves. They want to control everything. And I always say you can't grow unless you let go of the control. So entrepreneurs really need to focus on their strengths, hire their weaknesses. But the biggest thing is put the right people in the right seats. And if you are building your business to sell and not just building your business to pocket as much money as you possibly can, then build that solid infrastructure. And then the people, P, you really need to ask the question, who? You know, who handles customer service, marketing, legal, accounting, manufacturing, distribution, environmental, et cetera? The list goes on and on. The clue, Eric, is that you should never be next to the who because you really want to build the business without you. A lot of these online uh, these online um, businesses, e-commerce businesses, they don't have any people. Right. They don't. And that makes it very, very, very difficult or harder to sell, you know, because the buyers who are going to pay the money that these e-commerce businesses want because they want a multiple of their EBITDA, which is understandable, but but the buyers are not going to run that business. So you That's have right. to have the people in place that have been running the business that are going to continue to run the business, and you can't just take your people with you and leave the business with no people because now you have no business. Does that make sense? Absolutely. No, and it's it's I, I'm very close to this as I look at like how do I build this for scale and you can see how the trap is easy to fall into of like, look, I can just do more stuff and subcontract it out and I can hire yep. people off Upwork. I can do whatever, yep. but that doesn't build sustainability and it ultimately doesn't build long-term value uh, in, in what like measurable, you know, sellable value, even just measurable growth value. It's, it's, it may look like it's working because the graph seems to be going up into the right, but the yep. moment you break the, system the moment you slow down or change everything can go in the wrong direction right and then let's say you have independent contractors or subcontractors eric and you're paying them this but then a buyer says i really like the business i like what you do but we need to have employees and employees yeah. are going to cost this so that's going to automatically subtract from your ebitda yeah. which is earnings before interest taxes depreciation amortization and that's going to lower your sales price immediately because buyers pay a multiple of EBITDA. So you really got, I don't care if it's an online business. I don't care what kind of business it is. <laughs> you got to build the infrastructure, you know, and that's why so many of these e-commerce businesses are not selling, or if they are selling, they're not selling for maximum value. I could sell them for a lot more if they had a solid infrastructure in place. Does that make sense? Absolutely. No. And this is a, a good lesson for folks. And it's, I'm always amazed too when you look at the like you look at these different SaaS companies and and different e-commerce businesses. You you have to very much use that lens to look at how they grew to the point where they're at today. Because you know, look. Do you think Facebook has grown with independent contractors and subcontractors? Exactly. <laughs> Do you think Google has grown with independent contractors and subcontractors? You know, Facebook does have companies that they contract with that have the employees to employ the employees, but right. they still have people, you know what I mean? They just don't have a bunch of subcontractors and in independent contractors that come and go. So any of these businesses you look at, they have a foundation, <laughs> they have an infrastructure. 
So people is, is number one. Um, number two, because here's the bottom line too. If it's just the owner, like in this coffee business, it really was just the owner. They wanted to take everybody else with them, you know, and buyers, buyers don't want a job. And yes, that really, that really is a job. And many business owners, instead of creating a business, they've created a glorified job in which they go to work at every day versus a business actually works for them. So people's number one product is number two. So product is your industry, your product. Um, it is your service. You know, you have to ask, is my industry product service on the way up or on the way out? Meaning that, you know, do you have an Amazon and you're at the prime of your game or do you have a blockbuster and you're about to go bust? <laughs> and so product is huge. You know, there's a lot of industries that were dying before COVID that are now crushing it and vice versa. There's industries before COVID that were killing it and now dying. So I always tell my clients to ask these three transformational questions during product, because remember, 70% of businesses are going out of business have to be in business 10 years because they stop innovating. So in order to innovate under product, ask yourself these three questions. Number one, what business are you in? Amazon did this in the 90s. They said, what? they asked themselves, what business are we in? And they said, we're booksellers. We fulfill book orders. And then Amazon said, and this is a question your owner, your listeners, not your owners, your listeners <laughs> asking, what is your core competency? What do we do really, really well, better than everybody else? What is our USP, our unique selling proposition? And Amazon said, we do fulfillment better than everybody else. So then the third obvious question is what business should we be in? Should. And Amazon said, we need to be in a fulfillment business, not just fulfilling books, but fulfilling everything for everybody. Now, Amazon's not really a huge innovative company, are they? What have they made? What have they innovated? It's, it's, there are things, but in effect, they've basically, they just, they took on processes that nobody else wanted to they take on. They took on processes that nobody else took, took on. Yeah. They figured out what they were really good at, which was fulfillment. They're yeah. not out there making the widgets. They're not manufacturing the widgets. They're not creating, you know, the next the next best cell phone. They're not out there creating. They're out there fulfilling what everybody else creates. Yes or no? Correct? Absolutely, yeah. You know, those three transformational questions is really what transformed Amazon from a small bookseller to a multi-billion dollar worldwide conglomerate that they are today. You know, my good friend Jeff Hoffman was standing in the airport line to try to, you know, to get his boarding pass so he could board his plane. This was decades ago. And he said he waited almost two hours <laughs> to get to the agent to hand him this little teeny thin piece of paper so he could get on the plane. And Jeff said, I just messed my plane <laughs> because <laughs> you're handing me a piece of paper? And Jeff went out and created the airport kiosk. The kiosk that prints your boarding passes so you don't have to wait in a line and miss your plane. That's right. innovation. But as in the case of Amazon, you, you don't always have to be the creator. You, and now Amazon is the creator of fulfillment, right? Because they do it better than everybody else. But that's what, that's what they asked themselves back in the 90s. What do we do so well? And they said, we do fulfillment. And that's how they got so big. So all business owners really should go back and ask themselves those three questions. I don't care what vertical you're in, e-commerce businesses, you know, ask yourself, what business am I in? What I do really but well better than everybody else? And what business should we be in? Does that make yeah. sense? 
It does. It does. And then, it's, it's interesting that they're, 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 it always sounds simple, but it's a very <laughs> difficult introspective thing for a business owner to do to really evaluate what's the actual business we're, we're in and what's the thing yeah. that we can do, right? It really, it really is. And a lot of times, Eric, you have to have an outsider's perspective because like I said, when you're in your fog, it's foggy. And a lot of business owners are transactional versus transformational. They're working in the business, in the day-to-day, -day, putting out fires constantly that they don't really have time to sit there and think about what business am I in? What do I do really, really well? Yeah. And I, did you ever watch a movie, The Founder, based upon the McDonald's story? Yes, yeah, Cobb? yeah. It was Michael, you, Pete, Michael Keaton was the, the star of that one. But yeah, really, really good, yeah. uh, good movie. Do you remember when Michael Keaton, Ray Kroc, was in the bank trying to borrow money because he had already take, taken a, a, a lien out, mortgage out on his personal house. Right. He wasn't making any money. And it makes him like, I'm not going to lend you any more money. He walks out. And then a gentleman that followed him out, I forget his name. He said, what business are you in? Yeah. And Ray Kroc said, I'm in the restaurant business. He's like, no. What, <laughs> what business are you in? And he finally said, you need to be in the real estate business. You are not in the restaurant business, not in a hamburger business. You have to be in a real estate business. You have to buy the land, build the buildings, lease them to the franchisees. When the franchisees are not compliant, you avoid their franchise agreement and you get another franchisee in there. And then these franchisees are paying you rent. Those questions right there is what got Ray Kroc to have the leverage over the McDonald brothers to basically take their company away from them. Yeah. But it's the reason why McDonald's is the largest holding company real estate holding company in the world. Absolutely. You know? yeah. So a lot of times you made a very solid, a very valid point, Eric, is that it's hard for a business owner to have the introspect to do that themselves. You got to have an outsider's perspective like Ray Kroc did. Ray Kroc would have never figured that out on his own. And the interesting thing too, and we look like, let's take the, the greater story out of it, but like in general, like, so the like that business effectively was became the what McDonald's was not what it was built from because they couldn't answer those three questions i don't think like they they didn't have the vision to do this bigger thing right. versus now ray through this you know also third party help was able to really see what the future of the growing right. business is which is and it's the funny two like, brothers the two brothers did not want to let go of the control yeah. You will never grow without letting go of the control. The reason those that they tried to have multiple locations, but they wanted to control everything. And then they all fell apart. So they're like, okay, we're just going to focus on our one restaurant. But you got to let go of the control. You got to get good people. You got to get good integrators. You go back to the P of people. You, you don't build the business. You build people and they build the business. Ray Kroc got the right people. Yeah. Ray Kroc didn't do it all by himself. Right. So the third P is processes. And I could still use a founder movie based upon, uh, to, to illustrate processes, yeah, yeah. you know, because back in the fifties, mo most business owners get this wrong, Eric. Most business owners design the processes around their own agenda, not around the customer experience. McDonald brothers back in 1950s said, we want to build a fast food restaurant. We want our processes to be centered around, be designed with the customer experience in mind. So do you remember when, when the McDonald brothers went out to the empty tennis courts? That's right. They all their employees, TikTok, <laughs> drew it all on the tennis court, had their employees moving around, bumping into each other. One of the McDonald brothers was on the ladder, really orchestrating how they move. 
and, you know, kept redesigning it until they really had a symphony of systems and processes designed with the customer experience in mind. The customer experience that the McDonald's brothers came up with is we want our customers to experience great tasting food that's hot, fast, 30 seconds or less. Even though those processes were designed back in the 50s and tweaked along the way, you can eat it at McDonald's anywhere in the world and really get the same experience, Yeah. right? Have you ever dealt with a company we have to talk to three people, four people, 10 people to tell them the exact same story of your problem to try to get some resolve. Banks are notorious for this. Pharmacies, retail, social media companies are notorious for this. That They are not designing the processes with the customer experience in mind. They're designing Absolutely. customers to alienate us and piss us off. <laughs> and here's the bottom line. If you don't create raving fans, then your competition will. And you're not going to create raving fans by having broken processes, not designed with the customer experience in mind. So processes must be designed with the customer experience in mind. They must be productive, efficient, and they must be well-documented, you know, policy and procedure manuals. McDonald's can fire somebody on the front line and hire somebody within 30 minutes, have them working, because yeah. they have SOP checklists. It's easy to follow, understand, and implement. So you got to have those policy procedure manuals, those SOP checklists, employee handbooks, non-competes, you know, all the documentation. You never sell a business without all this documentation. Plus, you need it to scale. you got to have these processes to scale. So the fourth P, and this is the highest value driver, Eric. So businesses that have an EBIT of under a million dollars will typically sell for one to four times multiple. Probably one to three, more like it. Yep. Businesses with over a million dollars in EBITDA will typically go for four or five and up. However, the more proprietary assets you have, so the fourth P is proprietary, the more proprietary assets you have, synergies you have, the more we can sell your company for. It'll get you a much higher value. There are six pillars to proprietary. Number one is branding. The more well-branded your company is, the more I can sell it for as long as you your brand is relevant in the mind of the consumers. Is Blockbuster relevant in the mind of consumers? Is anybody going to pay money for Blockbuster brand? No, because they went bust. That's right. <laughs> the, 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 the most valuable brand in the world is, do you know? The biggest brand, the most valuable brand in the world is? That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's funny. I, I'm looking at a Nike sweater in the back. There's an example of someone that jumps to mind, but uh, I, I'm No, curious. they're not. They're in the top 10, but they're not the most valuable. Yeah. Oh, oh boy. We've, we've mentioned it several times on the show today. Oh, my. That would be our friends at Amazon. <laughs> Apple. No. Yeah, the oh, other A. The of other course. A. Yeah, yeah. When I, say, I look at a MacBook and an iPhone and uh, I own <laughs> yeah, everybody. I, <laughs> surrounded by Apple devices. They're actually, They're, it's such a part of it. I wouldn't think of going outside, but it's funny. That is that is hugely a brand impact, right? It is. I mean, the brand alone is worth $259 billion. Yeah. Billion. That's just a brand. That's not the assets, inventory, cash flow, real estate. Receivables, that's just a brand alone. So build your brand. And then um, the other thing is trademarks. Trademark your company name. You know, trademark your slogan. Your your I trademarked Exit Rich. Yeah. You know, trademark your podcast. But here's the big mistake the business owners make when trademarking. 
they go and they, they get a trademark for the state that they're setting up the business. So if they're in California, they start a business in California and get a California trademark. But then they go to GoDaddy, they make sure they get that .com, but they never check the federal database to make sure that that name is available. Right. And I've seen clients in business for years and all of a sudden receive a cease and desist letter and they have to stop using that company name. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen clients hire an attorney and spend lots of money and end up losing. So go spend the $1,500 to $2,000 and protect your proprietary stuff, you know, and even products, Eric, not just your name and slogans and what's unique to you, even products. And we have a client whose business we're selling in the $50 to $60 million range. They have 12 different products. Each one has a different tra federal trademark. Right. Each one is exclusive to Walmart exclusive to Target, exclusive to different retail chains. Strategics will pay more money. When buyers, there's five different types of buyers. When buyers look at buying businesses, they look at synergies. What synergies is going to catapult my current business to the next level? They're buying synergies. Patents are huge. If you've ever walked Shark Tank, every single shark always asks, do you have a patent on that? Do you have a patent pending? Do you have a utility patent? In fact, our offers are contingent upon patents. Right. We went and sold a business for $18 million. And that business was, was not really making money, but they had 18 patents. Contracts are another one that's really big. Manufacturing contracts, distribution contracts. Here's another thing about e-commerce businesses, online businesses. They don't have people. Some of them have processes. It's iffy. Most of them never, ever have contracts. Like coffee company I was selling, had a manufacturing company, no contracts. Had somebody else doing, making their coffee, no contract. You know, you really need those contracts so you have protection. And the buyer buying the business knows that this manufacturing relationship can continue on. This distribution company can continue on. Does that make sense? Yeah, so contracts are huge, you know, vendor contracts, distribution, manufacturing, any type of exclusive contracts, franchisors who have franchisee contracts are really valuable. Client contracts are extremely valuable because buyers want to make sure that there's revenue coming into the business, especially the contracts and e-commerce businesses are good at this, getting a subscription model for right. reoccurring revenue. And when you have reoccurring revenue, a buyer will pay a higher multiple for subscription models. Here's a caveat to contracts. I have never met a business owner in over 20 years that actually has a transferability language in their contract that says this contract is transferable to the new entity. Oh, okay. And about 99, 99% of all sales in the United States are asset sales, not stock sales. And so if your buyer refuses to do a, a stock sell and your, and your clients refuse to do a consent to transfer, your deal can fall apart. So you need to make sure you have that transferability language. The other thing is databases. Facebook paid $19 billion for WhatsApp. And WhatsApp was hemorrhaging. Yeah. But they, yeah, they, were not, they were not profitable on that they, purchase. They were, <laughs> Beyond not profitable. And they were hemorrhaging, but they had a billion users. So they had a synergy that Facebook wanted to buy. Facebook knew they could monetize an ROI, that investment. Celebrity endorsements are big. You know, if you look at rooms to go, who's the celebrity there? Cindy Crawford. Right. Have you ever seen her in any other furniture company? No. 
And then we have a client who's got products in, uh, endorsed by Oprah. Well, Oprah's like the queen of everything. So yeah. strategics who have some of our products would pay more money for that Oprah relationship because, you know, it's all about relationship capital because they want to get their products in front of Oprah. Same thing with radio personalities like Glenn Beck, you know, the Kate Craddock show. Yeah. These, these celebrities and radio personalities can only endorse one vertical at a time. Otherwise, they lose credibility. Jennifer Aniston's face is all over Aveeno. You don't see her face on any other skincare line. Right. And then um, e-commerce businesses, back to my e-commerce businesses. When they have the top positions on Wayfair, it's Etsy, Amazon, eBay, Modern. That shoots up in price because that's prime real estate. The strategics want to get their products in those placements. Does that make sense? Yeah, the new real estate is placement on page and in, in research results now instead of just physical location in the town. Absolutely. Probably even more valuable than physical location in the town. Yeah. That's where our that's where consumers are shifting to because most consumers, you know, because of Amazon, <laughs> whoever makes it easiest for the consumer to do business is the company's gonna win. Amazon wins because they make it so easy. But the pandemic has also changed the way consumers purchase products and services now. Walmart and Target did not have a membership in a program where you could order online and they deliver groceries to your doorstep. It's because Amazon acquired Whole Foods and Whole Foods has that program. It, you know? it, the interesting thing too, like you, you talked about the, you know, this, like every business is now a global business in effect. And what we've talked about, like those, these brands are, are no longer like the reach is not limited, but nor is the, like, they have to effectively go beyond their street corner. You know, it's, it's almost a responsibility as a business to be able to go. Yeah. As there far is as no limit anymore where you can do business. The limit is right here in your mind. <laughs> Now, and then the fifth P. I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No. Sorry. Yes. I just realized I I I I, I wanted to double check because I know we we talked about so we're we're five P's in and first of all I gotta say Michelle this is incredible like this is if anybody hasn't already started writing this down number one they're gonna buy the book and if they don't I'll buy the bloody book for them they need to because <laughs> Rich is a fantastic book but like you are you are sharing a ton of really really strong lessons here and I, I want to thank you as we're going through this because it's. It's it's a rare treat to have somebody that can really be as you know informed and share as much, even though you know obviously there's a lot more that's in the book than just simply listing out what we're talking about here. Right. Thank you, Eric. And so the fifth P is patrons. Patrons is your customer base. And most businesses follow the 80-20 rule where 80% of their business comes from 20% of their clients. And you got to be very careful on customer concentration. What you really want is customer diversification. And e-commerce businesses get in trouble doing this as well. Um, coffee company that I was talking about, 99.9% .9 of all their sales came from Amazon. Um, what happens if their relationship with Amazon fails? Then they just lost their entire business. So it's not just, you know customers that you have customer concentration in it's also the marketing channel that you're using and if all of your sales are through amazon now i know there's a lot of amazon sellers out there that only sell on amazon 
And that's okay, but it's risky. So when a yeah. buyer looks at that, they're going to want to mitigate their risk because what happens if Amazon decides not to do business with you for whatever reason? Right, or Amazon decides to get in the business you're in and effectively evacuate that channel for you now, right? Exactly. So you should always be diversified in your client base and how you get clients. So if you're getting all your clients through Amazon, you got to be very careful. You need to have multiple congruent resources, you know, like your own website, you know, like maybe Etsy or something else. You yeah. know, you have to have different resources, groceries, you know, being in a grocery store, um, et cetera. So anyway, this is customer concentration. We want to sell. I'll just give you a quick case study. We had a business, an oil manufacturing business we were selling. They had 70%, 65 to 70% of the revenue tied up in the BP contract. We appraised this company for 9.8 million. We had over 550 buyers. We narrowed it down to 12 LOIs, letter of intents. Every single letter of intent had a condition in there that if you lose BP, then we're not paying you this, this, and this, and this, because they're going to mitigate their risk. Yeah. However, we found a strategic that had very similar products and services, and a strategic didn't care about the risk because the reward for them was far greater on the upside because they've been trying to get their products and services into BP for decades and never could get their feet in the tour. So they're like, oh, this is perfect. We're in there with this company we just acquired. Now we can get our other products and services in there. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they were willing to pay $15 million for a company that was appraised for $9.8, $15 million for 70% of the business, which was 126% more than the appraised price for the company for 70%. So we can sell a business with customer concentration. It just makes it much more difficult. We have to find that buyer of a needle in a haystack, you know, type of situation. Yeah. That was a real yep. unexpected value, but it's an important one. Like it's it's hard to match those, but and also as well, like you talked about before, like the the outside view in is the only way in which they will discover that because if they're simply looking at their own internal channel, that's all they can be focused on. How do they possibly seek out a buyer who's looking for a bi-directional access to that mm -hmm. channel? and sees a greater value than they even realize they've got. So it's uh, And sometimes it doesn't always work out. I mean, right. <laughs> we, had, we had a media marketing company that we're selling in 10, 15 million range. They have five clients, Eric, only five. And during the process, they lost two of the five. And the reason they have five is because they were casinos. They catered to casinos. They did marketing for the casinos. It was, so, it was such a risky business, though, because casinos – We'll do the math. They bring on a new, you know, a, a new agent that makes the decisions and they would do the math and say, oh, we can do this in house cheaper <laughs> and fire the marketing company. So they lost two clients out of the five. The revenues dropped in half. Their EBITDA dropped in half. They were no longer sellable. I ended up having to merge them with another media and advertising marketing company. Um, so it doesn't always work out. So you want to make sure you have customer diversification. And then the last P, the most important P to all entrepreneurs, is profits. And everybody's like, Michelle, why do you put profits last? <laughs> the reason I put profits last is because profit, lack of profits is never the problem. Lack of profits is never the problem. If you're not making money, lack of profits is not the problem. It's the symptom of not operating on one of the other five Ps. I have clients that come to me all the time and say, Michelle, I have a profit problem. I'm like, no, you have a people problem or no, you have a process problem. 
you don't have lack of profits is not a problem. It's a symptom. If you are running your business on all five P's, I can promise you, you're going to make money. WhatsApp was a great example. They were far from profit. Uh, they were as far from profit as you can get while still be considered a, a business worth buying. But they had, of the other five P's, a majority of what was needed to bring value to their buyer. Right. That's incredible. So that's, that's the six P's. That's your infrastructure. That's and you can see how this infrastructure on the six P's, Eric, can work for e-commerce businesses, right? Yeah. Yeah, when it's and it's amazing, like you said, it's these practices apply to brick and mortar. They apply to e-commerce. They apply to locals, to globals. Like they're it's ass, right? The methods play out, and the importance is you have to just look at the overall methodology and make sure it all comes together. So, look with that. I know Michelle, we're we're coming up to time, and and this has been fantastic. So, exit rich. Yes. is uh i i highly recommend people people need to get this if you're at all involved in business even if you're not thinking today that you're building towards exit we have to understand we all are right the viability and sustainability is maybe your exit maybe it's your own personal exit are you creating something that's sustainable to be worthwhile to the next person that's going to take it over even if it's not necessarily a sale it could be the next ceo so uh, we'll have links to get get the book. Uh, and of well, can course, I, Eric? Can I tell everybody the value that they get? If they buy the oh, book before launch date. Absolutely, that would be fantastic. Yeah, and I'm sure your listeners want to hear about the extra golden nuggets, the extra value we're offering. I like this even better. <laughs> so, so the so Exit Rich launches in June, um, towards the end of June, and um, Steve Forbes has endorsed Exit Rich, saying it's a go mine for all entrepreneurs, as most entrepreneurs leave way too much money on the table when they're selling their business. Kevin Harrington, the original Shark on Shark Tank, wrote the foreword. Sharon Lecter is my co-author. So you don't have to wait till June to read Exit Rich. You can go to exitrichbook.com now for $24.79, which is less than Amazon. We will email you the digital download so you can start reading today. We will send the hardcover to your doorstep to anybody that lives in the United States for no additional shipping cost. We will give you a lifetime membership into the Exit Rich Book Club where there's video content and me doing transformational questions and, you know, talking about strategies and techniques and doing deep dives in, in all these different things that I teach over the last 20 years, plus documents, documents to run your business, documents to sell your business. We have sample employee handbooks, non-competes, org charts, policy and procedure manuals. We also have sample letter of intents purchase agreements, due diligence checklist, closing documents. All of these are there, not just for your review, but you can download the templates and start using them. If you went to your attorney to try to recreate all these documents, it would cost you over $30,000. And they're all available to you just for buying the book at $24.79. Plus, we'll give you a 30-day membership into Club CEOs, which is an entrepreneur mastermind that we started to really help business owners build that sustainable, scalable and when they're ready, sellable business, so they too can exit rich. And that's at exitrichbook.com. If there's 
if you if you got twenty four seventy nine to spend, which everybody does, then go go there. Yeah, because uh, if yeah. you're going to McDonald's, <laughs> <laughs> save save the burgers, buy the book, save the happy meal, save the quarter pounder with cheese. <laughs> well, I can proudly say I was lucky enough, and thank you to your team. Actually, sent a preview, and and I read it. It's fantastically written, uh, beautiful lessons. Like you said, you and Sharon did a great job in co-authoring this. And look, the book alone well worth the the value that that's attached on that cover price but the, the fact that you go far beyond it with what you're given and sharing i really appreciate it so yeah definitely folks uh do do go there and, and get the exit rich book this is this is a must-have and like i said it's it's a manual that everybody doesn't even realize they need until they start to read it and don't don't wait until you're looking to sell before you start to try and look backwards at what you needed to do along the way, it's 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 like a manual for success. So thank you for for bringing this to market. Thank you, thank you for having me, Eric. It's been an absolute pleasure. My main website, if anybody wants to contact me, is SylerTucker.com. Perfect. SylerTucker.com and then ExitRichBook.com. Excellent. Yeah, and I'll make sure I got links to the show notes. Michelle Siler right. Tucker, this has been an absolute pleasure, and thank you so much. I appreciate it, and uh, I I wish you all the best with the the official launch in June. I'm looking forward to my hard copy cover arriving at my doorstep, so I can put it on the bookshelf. But I'll have read it from end to end in the meantime, anyways, in advance, because it's a uh, it's an absolute must read for sure. Thanks very much. Thank you, Eric. It's been a pleasure.